Good evening, Harvest. It is good to be with you again this Lord's Day evening. Just a word uh, to mention uh, how grateful I am for this church, for your pastors. It's uh, Pastors Appreciation Month, so I appreciate Pastor Dale and Jeff and Wayne and, and the Lord's work in them and through them. They are brothers in the Lord with me and colleagues, gospel partners, and uh, it is a joy to be uh, with you tonight. Uh, this evening, we are going to look together at Mark chapter 9. So if you take out your scriptures and turn there with me, Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 30 and reading through verse 41. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 30, reading through verse 41. Let's hear God's holy word. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord shall abide forever. Well, the gospel according to Mark is probably considered the lightweight among the four gospel accounts. If Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were a relay team, many scholars and readers would conclude that Mark would be the weakest link. But is this a fair assessment? It's by far the shortest gospel, just over half of the output of Matthew and Luke, for example. Mark has by far fewer sayings of the Lord Jesus, by far fewer parables than do Matthew and Luke, and not a very memorable beginning 
We remember Matthew and the genealogy. We, of course, remember Luke and the great birth narrative. We remember John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But we sort of forget the beginning of Mark. It starts in the wilderness by the Jordan with a man named John the Baptist. And when Jesus is introduced, he's already an adult. Yet Mark is no lightweight. His gospel narrative, his words, his account is brief yet vivid. In fact, it is only Mark who adds certain details that help illuminate for us the life and ministry of Jesus. This could be in part because of the eyewitness testimony account from which Mark gets his material from the apostle Peter himself. So Peter could have told Mark these details such as in chapter 1, when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, Mark adds this little detail that there were wild beasts there. Things like that. Things like the look upon Jesus' face at certain points along the way. His gestures, his, his reactions. Lively little touches, as one said, not found elsewhere. Mark's gospel is anything but boring. It's action-packed. It's like a fast-paced movie. Says another commentator, it has all the zip and punch of a quick, hasty story that's meant to grab you by the collar and make you face the truth about Jesus, about God, and about yourself. And I think that's what he does tonight. I think that's what the passage does tonight, if we allow it. I think it It grabs us by the collar and it forces us to come to terms with who Jesus is and who we are in light of that. Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He's going to a cross to bear the sins of his people and he's preparing the disciples for what leadership is to look like as he will one day soon ascend into heaven. And he's going to completely turn upside down their paradigm. That's what we'll consider tonight as we move through this text together, looking at a few things. First, the discussion. Secondly, the instruction. And thirdly, then, a couple of main applications. So first, the discussion. Then the instruction from Jesus. And finally, a couple of applications to consider. So first, the discussion that we find. It begins this passage with an announcement from Jesus himself. It's the second of its kind. The first one comes in chapter 8 and verse 31. There we read this, and he began, Jesus, to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Some of you will remember Peter's response to this announcement from the Lord Jesus. He rebukes Jesus for such a saying, doesn't he? Why does Peter, the apostle, rebuke Jesus for such an announcement? Because Jesus' announcement didn't fit into his or the disciples' expectation for what a Messiah was supposed to be in their understanding of Messiahship. They were looking forward to a Messiah who would defeat their enemies, the Romans, 
who would give them their kingdom now, who would give them their best life here in this place. And so when Jesus talks about being killed, Peter would have none of it. Question, does Jesus, the Jesus we find in the New Testament, the Jesus we find recorded in the gospel accounts, does that Jesus, does the biblical Jesus fit into your expectation of the Messiah? Jesus came to seek and saved, save the lost. He came to give himself as a ransom for many. Or are you looking to Jesus to be your political Messiah? Are you hoping that Jesus will give you your best life now and maybe even an easy life in this world? Well, how does Jesus respond to that rebuke from the Apostle Peter? He says to him, in no uncertain terms, get behind me, Satan. Satan has always been about the business of trying to derail the Son of God from his mission, even in the temptation offering Jesus, hypothetically, a crown without a cross. The first announcement of his death in chapter 8 concerns the necessity of that death, whereas the announcement in our passage this evening speaks of the certainty of it. Look there with me in verses 30 and 31. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. He will, the passage says, be delivered. Now, the word delivered there, the focus of that word is actually upon the action of God the Father. The Son will be delivered by the hand of His own Father. We see Peter later in his sermon at Pentecost bringing together both human responsibility and God's sovereignty in chapter 2, verse 23, as it relates to the cross, where he preaches and says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so, Peter sets both of these twin truths together by the divine foreknowledge of God you are crucified by lawless men. But make no mistake, Jesus was delivered ultimately over by the sovereign, all-knowing, all-loving hand of God. It was, as Isaiah would say earlier, the will of God to crush Him. Yet for God the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So Jesus makes this announcement, the second of the sorts, and how did the disciples respond? Verse 32, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They were silent. For all their talking, they had nothing to say. I wonder if they just didn't want to hear it. There he goes again with that cross talk. But what then occurs next is meant to shock the readers. It's meant to shock us. 
They return, Mark records, to the house, and Jesus asks them a question, and the question was this, boys and girls, what were you discussing on the way? Have your parents ever done that in the van ride on the way to church? You're arguing in the back, and they know you're arguing, and they can overhear you arguing, and so they sort of ask you this question, hey, what are you guys talking about back there? And you're exposed, aren't you? That's sort of what Jesus is doing here. What, are you guys, what were you guys talking about on the way? as we're traveling from there to here. But they kept silent. Verse 34, but they kept silent, Mark says, for on the way, listen to this, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. About who was the greatest. They kept silent, Mark tells us. It's the same word, silent, used earlier in chapter 4, verse, excuse me, uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. The context there is Jesus enters the synagogue, and there's a man with a withered hand, and they watch Jesus, the Pharisees that is, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. It's the same word used here. What were you guys discussing on the way? But they were silent. What did the argument that they had along the way sound like? We don't know the exact words, do we? Mark doesn't tell us. One commentator poses this as a possibility. Maybe Peter or John or James had been bragging about going up on the mountain with Jesus. You know, he likes us the best. Remember, they, those three alone had gone up to the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. He had chosen those three alone, so perhaps they were arguing and, and sort of a one-upsmanship. Hey, we're the favorite of Jesus. Oh yeah, I heard he took you up there because he didn't think he could take you out of his sight, perhaps the others responded. Right after Jesus' announcement, a second one about his coming death, the disciples have an argument along the way as to which of them was the greatest. And we almost laugh at this episode because it's so ridiculous. But should we? The question is, are we any different than these disciples? And the answer is obvious if we would simply look into our own hearts. If I would look into my heart, we crave status, we crave praise and position. We might not ever say it, but we're silent and yet we're thinking it, we're feeling it. When do we struggle in these ways? I know in my own life, it's often when others succeed who are like me, who do the same things. I don't struggle with pride often when I meet a surgeon and the surgeon tells me how successful they are, what gifts the Lord has given to them. What I do struggle with is when a pastor tells me that his church has grown We struggle with position and status 
when others like us succeed. In this sense, it is in some regards easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. The truth of the matter is I'm no different than these disciples and neither are you. In fact, I think that's what's going on if you skip a little bit ahead, if your Bible's still open to verses 38 to 41, where John comes to Jesus and says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So he tried to be a good apostle, a good disciple. Hey, these guys aren't a part of our team. They're not a part of our mission And so we put a stop to it, Jesus. At least we tried to put a stop to it. And what does Jesus say to them? Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. The one who is not against us is for us. And we need to hear this, don't we, in West Michigan. We're really good at tribalism, aren't we? If you're not a part of my tribe, then you must be against me. When I lived in California, went to seminary, served a church there for a couple of years. If I was working in a coffee shop there and met a Christian, there's an immediate connection. If I'm working in a Starbucks here in West Michigan and someone sees me with a Bible and asks what I'm doing and I tell them I'm a pastor and they ask, where do you pastor? And I tell them, in the United Reformed Church, suddenly the question is, what tribe are you a part of? And so we put people in boxes and we sort of compare and contrast. We position ourselves We're like the disciples, especially when others like us, similar to us, doing the same things as us, seem to succeed. Maybe it's other moms. And it just seems as if from the pictures on Facebook that they're living the successful life. Or maybe it's a business partner or somebody, a competitor who is doing well. Or maybe it's a particular ministry here at Harvest Church. Somebody seems to be succeeding and and, and you find your heart sort of struggling with that. Maybe, boys and girls, it's a teammate, a classmate who's doing particularly well. Whatever the it is, whatever the particular is, we all struggle here immensely with pride. and, And the disciples' pride and hearts are exposed. What follows then, secondly, is the instruction from the Lord Jesus. The instruction, notice a couple of things, both what Jesus says and then what Jesus does. First of all, what does Jesus say? Well, we hear in verse 35, we see that he sat down. This was a common thing for a rabbi to do. When a rabbi would teach, he would sit down. This was a sign of authority. So Jesus sits down and he calls the (laughs) twelve. This is a good old-fashioned teachable moment that Jesus is going to have with these guys. So what would you say to these disciples? I have an idea of what I might say. 
But what does Jesus say? Listen, he sits them down, he calls the twelve, and he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Another translation puts it like this, you want first place, then you must take the last place. You must be last, not of some, but last of all, servant of all, of everyone. This was a paradigm crusher. These were Jesus' 12 disciples. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus would say to Peter and to the disciples, on this rock I will build my church. But here Jesus is changing their and our understanding of what leadership is all about. Leadership is not exercised through domination or coercion, but by way of humility and selfless service. So how are the office bearers to lead Harvest Church? Through death to self. That is the heart of a shepherd. Husbands, how are you to lead your wife? By controlling her? By intimidating her? By manipulating her? By throwing around passages on leadership and submission? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How are we as parents to instruct our children by raising our voices, by throwing our weight around? Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How were these disciples to lead a church? By power and prestige? Jesus was teaching them, no, through weakness. Through weakness, and that's what we see in the book of Acts. It's amazing, isn't it? The the radical transformation that occurs, for example, in the person of the Apostle Peter from the gospel accounts to then the book of Acts and the New Testament later on? This, this man who had the audacity to rebuke Jesus becomes this bold preacher who is, who is persecuted and ultimately killed for his faith. Why? How? Because he understands Finally, by the Holy Spirit's application of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, all that Jesus was teaching here in this place and other places, that to lead, to serve, to be bold, you have to be humble. You have to be weak. You have to become nothing. 
And if there is a vacuum, and I think there is, of leadership within our homes and within our churches and within this nation, the answer, according to Jesus, is not by one-upsmanship, but by humility. That is what Jesus is teaching them as he sits down and calls them around him and has a moment with these disciples. Guys, you don't get it. I'm just telling you that I have to go to a cross and all you are worried about is your own reputation and your own glory. And I'm here to tell you that this is not the time for theology of glory. This is a time for the theology of the cross. Glory will come. Glory will follow. Exaltation follows. Humiliation, suffering, death to self. That's what Jesus said earlier, didn't he? If anyone, verse 34 of chapter 8, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's true discipleship. Young people, if you want to prepare now for a life of service, if you want to prepare now for marriage, if you want to prepare now for ministry, serve those around you. This is what Jesus says, but Jesus also does something. He is the master of illustration, isn't he? He knows that we, because of our weakness, need concrete examples. So look with me at verses 36 and 37. After saying this, he goes another step further and says, and and, and he takes a child, Mark records, and puts him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You have to understand something about children in those days. Children in those times were used, not heard. They had absolutely zero status. They were social nobodies. Now, in the next chapter, in chapter 10, Jesus will instruct the disciples once again by saying that you, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to become like a little child. You need to throw off any uh, credentials, self-righteousness, and acknowledge your own dependency upon me, just like a child is dependent upon his parents. But here, Jesus means something a little bit different. He doesn't mean so much here that they need to become like little children. What Jesus is saying here is that they need to welcome children They need to welcome those like children. They need to welcome those with no voice. You see, the kingdom is for the least of these. And to welcome them, to welcome children, to welcome the least of these is to begin to understand the grace of God. And to welcome Jesus as Savior and Lord is to see your own need for grace. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is showing in this place with his disciples. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all.
Let's consider a couple of applications this evening. Given what Jesus has said here, given what Jesus is doing here and has shown here, how is true humility cultivated? Humility begins with an attitude. It begins with a mindset, doesn't it? A recognition of of God's undeserved, lavish grace, not only to others, but also to me. Whether you're a church kid or whether you've never been in the church until today, what you need to understand is the fact that you are here today is an evidence of God's sheer, undeserved grace. And it's easy for us, isn't it, as church kids? I'm a church kid. I grew up in the church to think, well, this is sort of just the way it goes. You grow up a church kid. Your parents are Christians. You go to Christian school or whatever, and you become a Christian. But if you're here tonight as a Christian, it is an evidence of God's sheer, undeserved, supernatural grace. And until we understand that, until we celebrate that, our worship will be dry Our fellowship will be selfish. Our outreach will be lacking. Turn with me, if you would, to an example of a man who had not been gripped by God's grace. Look with me at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Verses 37 through 50. Luke 7, let's begin at 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, I'm so thankful that my thoughts aren't recorded in Scripture. He thought to himself, listen, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender, Jesus said, had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. 
Jesus is not saying that he loved her and forgave her because she loved much. He is saying she loved much because she knew the great extent of God's forgiveness in her life. And the Pharisee didn't know that. He didn't celebrate that. And so he loved little. Simon had no need for forgiveness. So he thought he was a religious man. Therefore, he loved little, especially sinners like prostitutes. But notice even Jesus himself. Compare that with another man who is the very definition of humility. Philippians chapter 2 says of this man, and exhorts us to consider him. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Notice, it's yours by the gospel. You possess it. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, emptied himself, gave up his reputation, his status, his position to serve and save undeserved sinners. I recently officiated a wedding where I used Philippians 2, and part of the ceremony, the bride and groom wanted to wash each other's feet, which is a really fitting tie-in to Philippians 2. And at the rehearsal dinner, the rehearsal the, the night or two before, they said, no, Pastor Mike, which one of us should wash the other person's foot first? Oh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I gave my opinion, but they sort of went back and forth. I want to. No, I want to. No, I think I should. I think I should. And at the ceremony, I said, well, isn't that lovely? Each one wants to outdo the other in washing each other's feet. Let's fast forward in six months and see if we're still arguing about this. How about a year? How about five years? How about ten years? No, no, let me do it first. No, 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 no. Let me do it first. Humility begins with a mindset, an attitude, a position that recognizes and celebrates vertical grace that then flows over into horizontal love, and then it moves into action. Here's the interesting thing about humility. 
The humble person doesn't think about humility. C.S. Lewis, who said, humility is not thinking less of yourself as much as it's thinking of yourself less. It's not so much thinking less of yourself as it is thinking of yourself less. It is getting lost in service toward others, especially the least of these. Listen to one commentator to set out on purpose with real intention to be the servant of those on the bottom rungs of human life is the best way both to test your willingness to follow the Lord in His humility and to put on that humility yourself. Now, as Calvinists, And many of us as Dutch Reformed Calvinists, not all of us, it's a good thing. As Dutch Reformed Calvinists, we tend to say things like, well, to God be the glory and I'm not good at anything at all. seems to me that if we want to pursue and cultivate humility, we should spend more time serving others who can't give us anything in return except the joy we receive in giving, less time thinking about how little we can actually do or accomplish. We need to get to work. We need to steward and exercise the gifts that God has given to us. And we need to stop thinking about ourselves. Who are the least of these? Well, in this context, it was children, so let's go with that. Later on in chapter 10, Jesus will rebuke the disciples who prevent children from seeing and savoring Jesus. May we never do that as parents. May we never do that in the church. May we we labor so that our boys and girls in our churches, in our homes, in our schools have every opportunity to see and savor the glory and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the disciples, you remember the parents who brought the kids to have Jesus touch them, to bless them, and and the disciple says, no, he's too busy for that. He's got a kingdom now to, to exercise, and Jesus rebuked them. Who are the least of these? Who are the forgotten members of our society? Sometimes our churches, but our elderly. Are we serving them? Are you serving them, Harvest Church? Are you showing them honor? Are you bending over backwards to make sure that they have a place in the life and the community of Harvest Church? The least of these, what about those with special needs? A healthy church is a church which will celebrate weakness because a healthy church understands that we are all broken and in some regard we all have needs. What about visitors? What about outsiders? What about those who come from different backgrounds, ethnicities. See, we're pretty attracted to the success thing, aren't we? But Jesus is calling us, as he called the disciples, to to recognize and celebrate 
God's grace in their life and die to self so that they could pour themselves into the least of these. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 25, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, the king himself, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. True greatness, says one, is in the eyes of God, comes when we take the lowest place. Seeking no recognition for ourselves, but showing concern for the weak and the helpless. As followers of Christ, he says, we are called to care for people who usually get overlooked because to some people they do not seem all that important. But true spiritual greatness, he concludes, is determined by the company we keep. You know what I find interesting about this passage this evening in Mark chapter 9? I find it interesting that Jesus does not rebuke the disciples for their desire to be great, does he? No. Instead, he radically transforms their understanding and our understanding of what greatness really is. And Jesus didn't just teach these things. He showed these things. He's not only an example for us to follow, though he is, but thanks be to God, he's a savior for us to trust because he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May we humble ourselves this evening, celebrating our weakness, receiving him as Savior, and then serving him as we enter into the lives of those who are broken and needy. For his glory, the building up of his church. Amen. Please pray. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we, like the disciples, love glory and status and position, recognition. We measure and determine success so often in the eyes of the world. But Father, your Son came to this earth and completely changed our understanding of glory and greatness by calling us to humble ourselves in sacrificial love towards others. Father, we can't do this on our own. And so would you, by your Spirit's power, allow us to be those who would celebrate your goodness and grace to us And that we might, with the understanding of how much we've been forgiven, have hearts and lives that overflow 
horizontally and vertically with acts of service and love. Hear us, Father. Make us humble servants of the Lord Jesus Christ who humbled himself even by becoming obedient to death. In whose name we pray, amen.